Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hi, I'm Avantika Chilkoti, host of The Modi Raj, a new podcast from The Economist. Narendra Modi has watched over a period of rapid growth in India, but he's also the front man for a chauvinistic Hindu nationalism. Now, he's eyeing another term as Prime Minister. What will it mean for India and the world? I've been trying to get inside his head. Listen now to the Modi Raj from The Economist, wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. But if you are having a very long sleep requirement and you're waking up unrefreshed, then that really does raise the possibility that you have an underlying sleep disorder. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. With the UK's best-selling Science and Technology Monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello, I'm Alice Lipscomb-Southwell, the production editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. For most of us, switching off the light and curling up in a warm, cosy bed is a welcome reward for a good day done, or a much-needed respite from a bad one. But not everybody can soak up their allotted hours in joyful slumber before the alarm goes off. In fact, according to the Mental Health Foundation, it is estimated that 20% of adults suffer from some form of insomnia, while many more of us experience issues like sleepwalking, sleep apnea and night terrors. Dr Guy Leschziner is a world-renowned neurologist and sleep physician whose new book, The Nocturnal Brain, attempts to unpick some of the mysteries around what is happening to your body while you doze off in the land of Nod. In this podcast, we find out what is happening in our brain while we dream, how to get a better night's sleep, and whether sleep tech and apps are all they're cracked up to be. He speaks to BBC Science Focus online editor Alexander McNamara, who kicks things off by asking him what is actually happening in our brain while we sleep. We know that sleep is actually quite a complex series of states. So for the average adult, what tends to happen is we drift off into a stage of sleep called non-REM sleep. And during that stage of sleep or stages of sleep, actually, the brain becomes much quieter 
the electrical activity dies down. And when we look at the brain waves, the, the brain waves that are normally quite uh, small and rapid actually slow down significantly and become of much greater amplitude. And we think that during this stage of sleep, non-REM sleep, it has important functions predominantly for uh, uh, restoration, for uh, rejuvenation, but also for maintenance functions. So we know that there are a series of channels within the brain called the glymphatic system. And these open up significantly in non-REM sleep, particularly in, in deep non-REM sleep. And when we measure uh, the levels of certain chemicals, certain compounds that are really a, a function of the fact that the brain has been very active, we see that that stage of sleep is involved in, in flushing out some of these toxins, some of these products out of the brain. But after a, a while of being in non-REM sleep, usually after about 60 to 90 minutes or so of sleep, we then go into our first stage of REM sleep, of rapid eye movement sleep. And this stage of sleep is very different from non-REM sleep. It's characterized by the brain waves becoming once again very active. The brain looks to be in a state that is rather similar to wake. And this is the stage of sleep that we most strongly associate with dreaming or at least dreaming of uh, of dreams with a narrative structure so stories that are evolving and during this stage of sleep we think it's probably quite important for maintenance of mood for processing of emotions and for learning as well. So there are some theories about REM sleep being involved in the pruning out of memories that have been acquired over the course of the day that perhaps serve no useful function. And then over the course of the night, we then go through usually four or five of these cycles of dipping in and out of dreaming and in and out of non-REM sleep until we finally wake up in the morning. So are the, is it better to have like one REM sleep longer or non-REM sleep longer than the other one? So, so the brain seems to prioritise non-REM sleep. If we're sleep deprived, then uh, often REM sleep is sacrificed. And although we think that REM sleep has some very important functions, particularly in later life, uh, we, we can't really see any very clear long-term repercussions on losing REM sleep. In fact, in the olden days, some of the drugs that we used to treat psychiatric disorders completely abolish REM sleep. And um, there remains a little bit of a mystery about the precise function of REM sleep. In reality, actually, REM sleep probably serves different purposes at different stages of life. Because we know that, for example, children that are or, or babies that are still inside the womb will spend about a third of every 24 hour period in REM sleep. And that drops off very quickly once they're born. So we think it may have a very important function in terms of the development of the nervous system and the development of consciousness. Whereas in adulthood, the functions of REM sleep are much less clear. So these have already sort of been developed throughout childhood and adolescence to the point that when you're older, you need less of it. Uh, precisely. Well, that's at least what we think. Now, there are some uh, features surrounding REM sleep that suggest in later life it may well help uh, certain things like, for example, uh, reinforcing memories but trying to cleanse emotional context from those memories. So, for example, people who have post-traumatic stress disorder, they will typically have recurring dreams or nightmares that in some way relate to their original psychological trauma. 
Um, the reason why we think that that may be occurring is because in REM sleep, whilst many chemicals in the brain are at very high levels, um, actually the uh, chemical transmitters that are involved in the emotional flight, fright or fight response are actually significantly suppressed. But if you're having a uh, strong nightmare again and again and again that really continues to cause these hormones or these neurotransmitters to be secreted, then that may make it difficult to stay asleep during this nightmare. And that's why the nightmare plays again and again. So, so out of this phenomenon, there has come the theory that actually REM sleep has a function in terms of uh, dissipating very strong emotions from memories. It allows us to remember uh, those events, but perhaps removes the, the emotional context from them. And is that the, is it the REM sleep? So, I, you know, forgive me if I get this confused, but is it the REM sleep that we're having, like the the dreams that we remember more, or is that the non-REM sleep? That, that's typically REM sleep. So when we wake from REM sleep, we often have some dream recall. We, we used to call non-REM sleep, non-dreaming sleep, but actually that's incorrect, we now know. Uh, and in fact, when people have conditions like sleepwalking or night terrors, people do sometimes recall lip, little snippets of dreams. It's often little vignettes of, of scary visions, but they do dream of sorts in, in, in non-REM sleep. Hmm. So what happens if we don't sleep at all or we just don't get enough of these these periods of sleep that are really sort of, you know, helping our brains develop? Well, we now are beginning to understand the repercussions of, of, of sleep deprivation. We know that uh, very limited sleep uh, increases your risk of Certain conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, increases your risk of uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, can have a, a significant impact on your mood. Uh, and long-term disruption of sleep, and this may be to do with uh, a disruption of our circadian rhythm, of our internal body clock, seems to increase our risk of uh, even conditions like cancer. But it's really important to stress that, and one of the things that I often see in my clinic is that people come in with insomnia and say, I've read that this is going to cause me an early death, it's going to cause me to get demented, it's going to cause me to get cancer. But one of the fundamental issues that I think has been communicated very poorly is the fact that insomnia does not necessarily equate to sleep deprivation. Insomnia can sometimes be uh, as a result of a, a perception that you're not sleeping particularly well. If you have some slight insomnia, then actually, to some extent, your brain compensates by that. As I've already said, it promotes non-REM sleep, which seems to have a, a greater importance to our, our, our general health. And, and in fact, the other thing that I often see is people say, I slept very little uh, last night, for example, when they've come in for a sleep study and we've stuck electrodes all over their scalp. And when you actually look at their sleep, they're actually sleeping uh, uh, periods of time that are not dissimilar to somebody without insomnia. So it's a much more complex area than just saying, well, look, if I'm not sleeping particularly well or I've got a bit of insomnia, then that's going to put me at risk of all these conditions. It sounds like there are, um, with sleep in general, there are a lot of 
different disorders and things that go on that have you know completely different symptoms and effects but ultimately they're all centered around the same thing and obviously in your book there's a lot of case studies about these sort of um issues and that sort of thing what what, what are the sort of things that, that you see commonly as someone who studies people with disorders of sleep um, well, I think the commonest disorder in the population is is insomnia, which affects about one in 10 people on a chronic long-term basis. But actually, in terms of the things that we see in our NHS unit, it's primarily conditions like sleep apnea, uh, like narcolepsy, which is a neurological disorder that results in a, a complete lack of regu- regulation of, of, of sleep, but also other conditions like very prominent sleepwalking or people who act out their dreams. So that's, that's the thing. I was, I was thinking these are the things that you hear about, but obviously you, unless you're experiencing or something, it's very hard to sort of get an idea of what's happening. Um, and, and I know something like sleepwalking is you get these fanciful images of just people wandering around and, and opening the fridge or whatever, uh, going downstairs. But what what is happening? Why, why do people sleepwalk and how serious a problem can it be? Well, a, a lot of these conditions really have the same uh, underlying origin. We used to think that the brain is either awake or asleep, and when it's asleep, the whole of the brain is in one particular stage of sleep. And what we're now beginning to understand is actually that the brain, the sleeping brain, does not act as one unit. And it's quite possible for certain parts of your brain to be in very deep sleep while other parts of the brain are awake for thinking, for planning, for consciousness, uh, and for memory, remain in very deep sleep. But other parts of the brain involved in movement and also an area of the brain called the limbic system, which is involved in emotion, uh, actually exhibit wakefulness. So in a way, your two parts of the brain are detached from each other and allow these behaviours to arise in the middle of the night with any, without any conscious control or any rational thinking. Um, many, many of the other conditions that we see that are not uh, sleepwalking uh, are also examples of crossovers of overlaps between the different stages of wake and non-REM sleep or wake and REM sleep. So things like sleep paralysis, for example, which is when people wake up but feel completely paralysed for uh, a few seconds or a few minutes. We know that in REM sleep, in rapid eye movement sleep, the body is completely paralysed. The only muscles that continue to work are the muscles that control our eyes and the muscles that allow us to breathe. But when REM sleep uh, is overlapping with wakefulness, then sometimes that paralysis that is a feature of REM sleep continues. That crossover that you say, is that similar to how, you know, the, you know, we're, we're in one place or another? Is that where we're remembering our dreams or is that where something that's happening? Like, obviously, a lot of these things, it seems to be that there's a problem between the two sides not marrying up, uh, efficiently crossing over from one side to the other. The best metaphor for this is that we think that we are very, very slick at changing the gears of our brain. We're a bit like a Formula One car where you can go from between the different gears very, very quickly. But actually, the reality is that we're probably like an old banger and that occasionally the gears grind 
And the, the switch between non-REM sleep and REM sleep or the switch between REM sleep and wakefulness or non-REM sleep and wakefulness actually is not quite so smooth. And it's when you get these two states at the same time that it often results in these kinds of conditions. Is that why, um, is there anything that we can do to sort of, uh, you know, grease the wheels as if to help us? <laughs> to, to pour oil into the gearbox. Yeah, exactly. Um, so so I, I think it is about um, making sure that your sleep is as, as regular as possible, that there are as few extrinsic factors in your environment or from a psychological perspective or from the behavior that you're undertaking surrounding sleep to prevent you, for example, waking up in a stage of sleep that you shouldn't do uh, and to... Uh, make your sleep as stable as possible. Um, and a really good example of that is that we often see people who experience uh, something called hypnagogic or hypnopompic hallucinations. So these are people in whom they wake up from dreaming sleep, but their, their REM sleep continues into wakefulness. Now, sometimes that can manifest as sleep paralysis, but at other times it can manifest as hallucinations. So often people in the room or out-of-body experiences, uh, these kinds of things. And we think that these represent a continuation of the processes of dreaming into wakefulness. Uh, we often see these uh, conditions in people who have disrupted sleep patterns, who have a, a degree of insomnia or sleep restriction, and sometimes simply trying to regulate sleep and try and get a better night's sleep results in a resolution of these phenomena. Hmm. It, sound, it sounds eerily familiar to some of the things that I've had before, which I guess it's but, one uh, of the... you, You're probably not sleeping well enough. Then. <laughs> we need to work on your sleep. Yeah. Um, well, that's actually one thing, like reading the book, um, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, on a personal level, I've had pretty bad sleep all my life, but um, it, like recognising things here and there, is that sort of something that you want to get when, you know, you publish the book to, to, to make people aware of things that actually these things exist because obviously when you're asleep it's a very sort of personal and private thing going on so you don't really know what's normal and what's not yeah so 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 many many of the patients that i see have gone for many many years either uh, having difficulty getting a diagnosis or actually realizing that what they have is a real phenomenon for which we can do something about and, and so the power of these stories, and in many ways, it's what drove a lot of the people who were involved in the book, because every, everybody who, that I describe in the book was actually involved in the writing of the book and uh, actively participated in the telling of their story. And what drove them was really to try and communicate to other people who might be experiencing similar things out there to know that they can ask for help. The, the, the people that you had in um, that are in the book, they talk, you know, as you say, they, they, they want to get their stories out. Are there sort of certain things? Are these like the most extreme cases of these that you've seen? Or are these just generally things that 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 do exist that people just aren't aware of? I think some of the cases are very extreme. So you. If you uh, consider the patient I describe who was riding her motorbike in her sleep or or the uh, patient who was convicted of rape as a result of his sexomnia, um, those are obviously very extreme cases. But some of the other cases are, are, are fairly standard cases. So, for example, the people that I describe with narcolepsy 
or sleep apnea or insomnia, they're rather typical. And then there's, there's something that we can do about that. Yes, most, most of these conditions, if they are, are not curable, they are treatable. Absolutely. Um, uh, otherwise, there would be no point in simply giving people diagnoses. And uh, I, I think I would feel very depressed in my clinic on an ongoing basis. Um, so uh, on that note, there's obviously a, a lot of things. And there's obviously a few questions that probably come up quite a lot um, in your field of work. Um, there, there, there must be things like, for instance, dreams. What What are they and why do we get them? I'm not sure that I can answer that in a in an hour podcast. Never mind uh, a couple of sentences. Um, I, I, I think the short answer is we don't fully know what uh, dreams are. There are lots of theories about why we dream, um, and uh, but none of those have been definitively proven. You know, in the past, it was even postulated that dreams were simply the byproduct, the, the, the garbage of various parts of the brain being activated. I think that that view is, is no longer very strongly held. And we think that probably dreams are a function of these various parts of the brain that are, are firing off at the same time, creating different uh, connections between the various parts of the brain um, that is part of the underlying uh, process, the underlying function of, of REM sleep be that uh, the development of consciousness, um, modelling our world around us to a, a sort of virtual reality in which we, we, we practice, uh, to uh, simply a function of, uh, of learning or creativity. Does that mean that things like you know, recurring dreams, they're the same parts that are firing over and over again, working to improve them? Uh, pr presumably, yes. Uh, I mean, you know, we talked earlier about uh, the dreams of po or the nightmares of post-traumatic stress disorder. And we, you know, we think that that is a, a function of essentially psychological healing in a way. So the removal of a, a, a very strong traumatic emotion from an experience that we've had. So and there's, this might come from a, a a personal as opposed to a bigger thing, but like for instance, like some nightmares that that, that I get, I tend to find that even though it's a fairly mundane thing happening in the dream, the nightmare is far more terrifying than it is in reality. Now, obviously, something that's happening in post traumatic stress that that is a, a bad thing that's happening in reality. But is there any any reason why our brains would be amplifying the sort of the the, the, the menace that's going on there in some way? Well. I don't know how to answer that. That's a difficult question to answer. Uh, um, um, yeah, I, 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 um, I, I think the short answer is we just don't know. Mm -hmm. So those big compendium books that we've had in the past saying this is what your dreams mean, it, they're, yeah. they're nonsense, really. Well, I, I, I think they're unprovable. And, um, you know, if you are, for example, a believer of Freudian theory, he would argue that uh, dreams are uh, and nightmares are a, a, a censored form of your uh, inner thoughts and that you require a psychotherapist in order to interpret your dreams. I think that most of these um, views have been uh, strongly discounted uh, in, in recent years. Um, 
And then, so also, do they, how does your brain sort of respond to other factors that you might be doing to sort of help with sleeping? So for instance, uh, taking sleeping pills, like how does your brain respond to that? And does that have like a, a an effect that's, that's long-term in a way? Well, sleeping pills are essentially sedatives. So they don't, they don't mimic natural sleep. What they do is they lower the or, or sorry what they do is they raise the threshold at which you would wake and actually most sleeping tablets uh, increase the amount of light non-rem sleep but not the really deep sleep that your brain craves so so they're not a mimic for, for natural sleep and in fact in recent years we've uh, become increasingly concerned about the long term con- the, the long term and the short term consequences of these tablets so in the short term we know that these tablets can often result in um, uh, morning confusion or sedation they're associated with an increased risk of road traffic accidents and in, in the elderly they often cause people to have falls um, in the long term, there are some concerns that they may actually have a very deleterious consequence on the brain and may put you at risk of conditions like dementia. Although I think it's important to stress that it may be that there is an alternative explanation that people who are in the very, very early stages of dementia may have an insomnia as part of that. And at the moment, that story has not been fully unraveled. Does that mean sleep disorders in some way can actually um, suggest that there are other problems happening or things that are happening in the, you know, you're more susceptible to something else? Absolutely. We we now, uh, for example, recognise that in some people who act out their dreams, so uh, in people in whom the normal paralysis that we get in REM sleep doesn't kick in properly, uh, actually are at much higher risk of developing conditions like Parkinson's disease. And the reason for that, we think, is because the areas of the brain that are involved in generating the paralysis of REM sleep are often affected by the underlying neurological disorder that will in later life go on to develop more overt features of neurological dysfunction. And so we're now looking at patients with this condition called REM sleep behavior disorder where people act out their REM dreams to see whether or not those people might be candidates for drugs that might modify the risk of Parkinson's disease. And in in the world of neurology, we're very uh, aware now that that many neurological disorders have subtle manifestations uh, maybe years or even decades before they become more overt that, that, that are really important clues as to uh, some sort of progressive neurological dysfunction. And sleep is one of those manifestations. Hmm. So it's, it's, it's quite interesting to think that something that we think of so removed from one thing and another can actually have quite a good indicator of what's happening in your body and your brain in general. Yes. And I, and I think that in a, in a way, that is, uh, that is the case across the board in the world of neurology. So we know that how well you sleep or whether or not you've got a sleep disorder affects a really wide array of neurological conditions, some of which are extremely common, like, for example, a headache or epilepsy. So we know that sleep disruption or sleep disturbance increases your likelihood of having seizures and is also a very potent trigger for conditions like migraine. 
What about um, things? So obviously there's been a lot of uh, technology now that's come about that's supposed to help you aid sleep or to, to track your sleep. Can sleep tech and apps and that sort of thing, can that actually help you get a better night's sleep or at least be understand your sleep better? Well, I think that, that this is a, a very controversial area. We know that um, if you sleep normally, then actually these sleep trackers that are commercially available uh, are becoming increasingly reliable in terms of measuring how much sleep we have. But if you're a normal sleeper, then you probably don't need those sleep tracking devices. And if you're a light sleeper or you have a sleep disorder, then these sleep trackers become increasingly unreliable. And in particular, their lack of reliability is the case when it comes to sleep stages. So a lot of these trackers will claim to say, well, we, they can tell the difference between deep sleep and light sleep and REM sleep and non-REM sleep. But if you have something going on with your sleep, that, that, that reliability drops off even further. And the, the, so the people who are using these sleep trackers are typically people who have sleep issues already. Um, and, and sometimes seeing that in black and white, or, you know, that is presented as an accurate representation of your night's sleep can sometimes simply increase your anxiety about sleep and make your sleep even poorer. So I'm a, a very strong proponent of using these devices very cautiously. Mm. So and then sort of that's that would be a good reason to say if you're if you feel you need to use a device or an app or something to actually say maybe I need to to speak to someone yep. about it precisely are there any things that can have like a really positive effect on the quality of your sleep whether you have a sleep disorder or not uh, we we refer to behavior surrounding sleep as sleep hygiene and we know that sleep hygiene can make a huge difference to the quality of sleep and when we talk about sleep hygiene we talk about things like uh, the effects of alcohol the effects of uh, nicotine um, and the effects of uh, other drugs that may influence our sleep. But we also are talking about things like avoidance of bright light in the evenings. We know that light, uh, particularly light in the blue spectrum, which unfortunately a lot of electronic devices put out at very high levels, can have a really quite significant consequence on your sleep. And the way that it does that is because there are direct connections between the back of your eye and your retina and the part of the brain that's responsible for your master clock, your circadian rhythm. And so bright light suppresses a hormone called melatonin, uh, which is the brain signal to the rest of the brain and also the body that it's time to go to sleep. It, we know that if you expose yourself to a burst of bright light in the evenings, it's very effective at suppressing your natural melatonin levels. And so it can have really quite significant consequences both on the quality of your sleep but also on your internal body clock. It can push your internal body clock back and make it more difficult to get off to sleep at an appropriate time. So all of these things can have really quite significant impact on sleep quality and your ability to go to sleep at an appropriate time. So how long should it be really before, when I, in the evening before I go to bed, when should I put my phone down, switch the telly off and just go screenless? Uh, I, I, well, if you are one of those fortunate individuals in whom uh, sleep is a, a very uh, easy occupation, 
then I don't think you need to worry about it. And I think that's the key thing, that, that you only need to worry about these things if you are a poor sleeper. If you're not, then don't worry about it. It's the same as caffeine. You know, there are some people who can drink an espresso before bed and it actually has no impact whatsoever on their sleep. I wouldn't necessarily say stop drinking coffee. It's only if you are having significant problems with sleep like insomnia that you need to worry about it. If you are a poor sleeper, then uh, generally speaking, uh, uh, avoidance of bright light for at least a couple of hours or so before bed is the general recommendation. And then, so what about if um, what about something like exercise? Does that have a does that have a positive benefit? Well, we we, we think that exercise certainly uh, can in some individuals improve the quality of sleep and increase the proportion of of deep slow wave sleep so exercise is generally recommended for people who uh, are having uh, sleep issues mm-hmm. <clears throat> okay um and then so just a, a a few a couple more general questions um uh why does it why is it that some people they can sleep for hours uh like get to sleep very easily sleep for a long time and then wake up and still feel groggy whereas there are some people who can just go for a you know a relatively short amount of time and feel you know sickeningly sprightly in the morning (laughs) so we know that our sleep requirement is to a large extent uh genetically predetermined and uh that uh those genetic factors influence whether or not we're likely to have insomnia. They influence our own internal body clock. So uh, there are genes that influence whether or not we're morning larks or evening owls. But it also, uh, to some extent, defines our sleep requirements. So, for example, I, I, I look after some families in whom everybody in the family only needs five hours to uh, feel refreshed, whereas uh, other people, for example, need nine or even 10 hours to feel refreshed. But if you are having a very long sleep requirement and you're waking up unrefreshed, then that really does raise the possibility that you have an underlying sleep disorder. It suggests that there is something that might be disrupting the quality of your sleep or or, uh, lessening the depth of your sleep, um, and therefore uh, those individuals should probably at least speak to their doctor to see if there's an obvious explanation. Is it is something that can't be um, fixed with a good nap? Um, uh, well, if you have a very long uh, sleep opportunity and it is purely a function of the fact that you have a genetically long sleep requirement, then that may be fixable by sleeping a little bit more. But actually, it's much more likely that you may have a condition like, for example, sleep apnea, where your breathing, your snoring disrupts the quality of your sleep, or that you have uh, neurological disorders like a condition called periodic limb movement disorder, which results in recurrent kicking at night that is disrupting the quality of your sleep. That was Dr. Guy Leschziner explaining what happens in our brain while we sleep. His book, Nocturnal Brain, is out now. If you're looking for a little bedtime reading, the latest issue of BBC Science Focus is packed full of features, news and interviews to help you make sense of the world around you. In the July 2019 issue, we explore the lives of the Technicolor dinosaurs, meet the scientist who wants to redefine masculinity and find out the truth about CBD oil. 
And don't forget to go back and listen to one of our previous podcasts. We have more than 75 episodes of the Science Focus podcast, each of which is still well worth a listen. We think you'll really enjoy them, so be sure to let us know what you think in the comments and reviews. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Science Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.